Now, I can tell you as an African-American woman, so we're talking about disparities, sometimes we're not taken seriously. Well, you know how I felt about my breasts. They were asymmetrical, saggy. They weren't my best asset. I think there's a connection, a gene that we don't know about. Genetics isn't always black and white, and the emotions and decisions surrounding genetic testing can be even more complex. Welcome to Patient Stories with Gray Genetics. I'm Eleanor Griffith, a certified genetic counselor and the founder of Gray Genetics, a telehealth genetic counseling and consulting service. It seems like there are constantly headlines in the news about genetics, but few news stories focus on the patient experience. At Gray Genetics, we are collecting patient stories, your stories. Every other Tuesday, we share an interview with a patient or a genetic counselor. Everybody's aware of breast cancer. A company offers a discount for breast cancer awareness, and I'm just kind of like, what are you, this is not a holiday. It's not July 4th. Today, I'm interviewing Carla Baptiste. Carla was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2007 at age 34. Like many young women diagnosed with breast cancer, her genetic testing results were negative. Carla's breast cancer recurred in 2014 with metastases to her spine. Less than a year later, she was cancer-free for a second time. Carla has written a memoir about her experience called Dig in Your Heels. Carla is an ambassador for the Cancer Treatment Centers of America and for the Stanford Cancer Institute Community Partnership Program, which aims to reduce breast cancer disparities among African-American women. Hi, Carla. Thank you so much for doing this interview with me. Hello. Thank you for having me. So I started your book yesterday. I finished it this morning. Um, really quick and enjoyable read. Um, it was kind of exciting for me to read a book knowing I was going to be talking to the author immediately afterward. <laughs> um, and I was, I was really struck by how open you were with talking about yeah. how you felt about your breasts even before you were diagnosed with breast cancer, sharing everything that was going on in your life with your finances, mm-hmm. um, student loans, job. Yes. Um, relationship with your ex-husband, then your husband again, then your (laughs) (laughs) ex-husband. And I just, I mean, what's not in your book is like the idea of writing this book. So what led you to want to write a book to tell your story? And what was your process like in deciding how to tell your story and how many Mm -hmm. personal details to share? Well, it's funny because when I was going through this experience, just the things that were happening, I was just like, this is unbelievable. (laughs) You know, I was like, this needs to be a book. (laughs) (laughs) So, but all all my life, I think I've wanted to write a book. I just thought it would be, I usually like biographies and self-help type of books, um, Uh nonfiction. So I figured it would be something in that genre, but I just never thought it would be about breast cancer. I mean, who thinks they're going to have breast cancer, who even crazy, we'll talk about that later, but there are some pieces (laughs) in my book when I talk about just my vision for my life. But yeah, so I read a lot of memoirs and they always ended with, okay, I got through treatment. I'm great. You know, and I always thought, okay, well, what happens after that? Mm-hmm. How do you go about your life again? And how do you, you know, what happens with your marriage or your boyfriend or dating being young? Because yeah. it's always been a over 50 person year old woman's disease or your grandmother's disease, your mother's disease, but not a 30 something year old young lady's disease. So I thought it would be good to share just what the survivorship is like and the new normal and all that kind of thing. And what's it like trying to get to the five year survival um, mark? So. I set out to write the book a couple years in and then it was funny because people were saying, well, what's your book about and when is it going to end? And it's like, well, I'm waiting to get to five years. So I just (laughs) kind of was living and trying to see what would happen. You know, it was kind of weird. Yeah, I didn't know how it was going to end either. (laughs) So, yeah, yeah. even I know I was I was getting to. I was getting your your books organized sort of in chapters where you go year one of survivorship, year two, three, four, five. Mm-hmm. And then when I was getting to like year three or four, I think I checked your Twitter again. And then I was like, oh, wait, it says stage four. And it was kind of like a spoiler for me because yeah. I found that initially, but I'd forgotten. Um, and then, you know, year five ends and then there's an afterward where you talk yeah, about Yeah, I recurrence. had to go back so, and write yeah. the afterward because 
You know, and it's weird because everyone makes it seem as if you're going to get to this five-year cancer-free mark and then you're home free. You don't have to ever worry about cancer again. That's kind of the impression you get. But mm-hmm. then I started learning about people that it recurred even after 10 years. And so I thought it probably was a good thing that it came back in the seventh year just so I could tell people it's possible and you still need to be vigilant. I mean, it's not good that it came back, but, you know, at least yeah. it's an example to people that you you're never, ever in the clear, so to speak. I mean, you can always be hopeful. I don't want to give like doom and gloom. What I'm saying is. You have to be vigilant. And when my cancer recurred and when it metastasized to my spine, I found it early because I was being persistent about muscle spasms in my back. Mm -hmm. And as a an ambassador for the cancer fighters um, organization within Cancer Treatment Center of America, I would take phone calls from patients who are thinking about coming to the Cancer Treatment Centers of America. And Mm -hmm. a lot of people told me that they ignored signs in hindsight. You know, they're like, I just thought I was tired or I had this little pain, even though they're cancer survivors. They just thought it couldn't be cancer again. Right. And so, yeah, it's just good to be vigilant. And so, yeah, it was the afterword. And actually, when I was publishing the book that, um, that I found the metastasis. Yeah. How close were you to to publishing and finishing your book totally? Like I, I even wondered in when you're talking in year five, I think you mentioned a conversation with your oncologist where your oncologist is saying, well, you know, no, year five is not magical. But after that, the risk of recurrence goes down pretty drastically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was wondering, is that something you'd already written or did you go back and add that? No, in? that was real life experience in my doctor's office because I was writing it as I was going and I really was asking because they kept saying five year what was it that they were saying it was a word they were using I think I was curious about what it meant to be cured because they kept saying like I would be on these medications and I would do all these different things but I would be cured and I think there was a difference in how other doctors talked about it Like some say cured, some say you can't say cancer free. Others say you're no evidence of disease. Mm -hmm. It was just something I I wanted clarity about. (laughs) I I remember in the in the book, um, one of the terms that you didn't like, and I think you preferred cured, was in remission. And you're like, that sounds that sounds like it could come back. Why would I want to use that word? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Does it sound like that to you? It it does. It does. It to me it it implies that it's sort of like from a non-medical layperson perspective and I guess even yeah. a medical perspective it implies that it's at bay yeah. um and under control and yeah, you know no evidence of disease sounds like more concrete and reassuring I guess yeah. even though there's still that idea of like no evidence, evidence. that's just like yeah. evidence there's still like sort yeah. of wrapped up in there. that like, uncertainty <laughs> yeah this all yeah. yeah yeah and I think it's kind of like intermission yeah it's like got a pause right now right <laughs> but it could come back yeah I just tell everybody I'm cancer free yeah that's a clear yet positive um framing I think mm-hmm. so a diagnosis of breast cancer at age 50 or younger is reason enough to be referred to genetic counseling even without any other family history of cancer um you do talk about mm-hmm. in the book you were, were referred to genetic counseling and you ended up going to the appointment with one of your three sisters who was in town visiting you at the time mm-hmm. but i you don't mention in the book and i was really curious as a genetic counselor which of the physicians you saw actually referred you to the genetic counselor? Was it a surgeon or oncologist? And what stage in your diagnosis and, treat- and treatment was that referral made? Uh, it was my oncologist, and it was later. I, I um, see that you recommend to do the testing earlier before surgery. Yeah, because I mean, I mean, generally, that's like the genetic counselor perspective is like, we really like Mm -hmm. when a breast surgeon refers a patient immediately before surgery, because if we do find a mutation, um, depends a bit on the gene, but especially let's say a mutation in a BRCA gene that would just provide some clarity that probably a double mastectomy is definitely what makes more sense. Just Mm -hmm. another data point to kind of think about um, cancer risk going forward. 
Yes, and I didn't have the gene, but what I would have liked to have known is if I had known I had 14 out of 24 of my lymph nodes that were involved, Mm -hmm. I would have opted to have a double mastectomy. But I didn't know that at the time. I thought it was stage two. So, yeah, when they initially diagnosed me, they they said it seems like it's stage two. But then with the mastectomy and the lymph node dissection, it turned out that it was actually stage 3A. Yeah. So, yeah, those are some things I would have done differently. And, yes, I understand if you did have a genetic mutation and if it was BRCA2, right, is the one with the ovarian risk? Well, BRCA1 and BRCA2, yeah, both associated with an increased risk for ovarian cancer as well as breast cancer. Yeah. So I, yeah, I, if you're going to go under the knife and the anesthesia and all of that, it's probably a good idea to do it less often, (laughs) you know, do it early testing than you would just do one surgery. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wonder, did the surgeon, um, you talked to a few surgeons or a few plastic surgeons at least, mm-hmm. did the surgeons or the genetic counselors talk to you about the possibility of a double mastectomy just based on how young you were when you were diagnosed? No. So when I was diagnosed, being young, the assumption is that you want to spare your breasts. Mm. And I was thinking of maybe having a child and I wanted to breastfeed. So going in, I thought, okay, well, you know how I felt about my breasts. They were asymmetrical, saggy. They weren't my best asset. And so I thought if I do a lumpectomy, it's just going to make matters worse. So if I do a mastectomy, I can get a lift on the right breast and they can be symmetrical and perkier. Right. (laughs) So then I was going to get the mastectomy. So, but only on the one side because I wanted to still try to breastfeed. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, when young women are tested, if they have the genetic mutation and they're predisposed to breast cancer, now they're going ahead with the prophylactic mastectomy, double Mm -hmm. mastectomy. Yeah, but that, even 11 years ago, it seems like it wasn't that long ago, but 11 years ago, there wasn't a whole lot of that going on. Right. And that, yeah, that, I don't think you mentioned that specifically in the book, but you do talk about, you know, at different points, like thinking about having children. And that makes a lot of sense, just wanting to hold off specifically um, for breastfeeding too. Mm-hmm. Yep. So what, what was your experience with genetic counseling like? Um, I know different times I talk to patients who've had like wonderful experiences with genetic counseling and others have had awful experiences and others have barely memorable experiences, like full range. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So I'm really curious, like in the book, it's it's a pretty brief mention, but it does make it in there. So I knew you remember it at least. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, what were your impressions of it? And do you think it would have been more or less helpful if you'd been referred for that conversation at a different stage in your diagnosis and treatment? I actually think the timing was perfect for me because at the time that I was diagnosed, I just felt like there were so many appointments and it was just so overwhelming Mm -hmm. that I don't know if I would have even understood everything. And then it was really nice that they recommended that I bring a family member with me because that helped out a lot for filling in gaps and um, just hearing the information, someone else having another set of ears. So that was good. Um, And we sat down, my sister and I, with the genetic counselor. You know, you've got to go and give the blood first, and then they sit you down and talk to you about the results. Knowing that it was just random, and she gave me like one in however many million chance of you getting breast cancer, that was a relief because I do have three sisters. and. Uh No brothers. We're all girls. So, of course, when I got breast cancer so young, they were all concerned about what their risk was. Right. So, um, but we still don't know because, you know. You still share 50% of your DNA with them. (laughs) Yeah. And how many, it's a pretty low percentage of people that are genetically linked, right, with their breast cancer is genetically 
Yeah, um, it's like it, it's, it's like when right when we know that there's a mutation um, and there's a lot of evidence with a specific gene that there's an, an increased risk. Um, you know, it's it's sort of like looking at it one side when you have someone with a positive result. Often we look at the family history and it kind of neatly fits together. Um, but then you take it from the other side as someone who's actually diagnosed with breast cancer in her 30s. And sometimes we, it's just negative and we just don't have a good answer. And it doesn't mean that there aren't genetic factors. It just means it's not necessarily wrapped up in one gene mm-hmm. um, that really has a really big impact that we understand. Mm-hmm. So your mother's side of the family is African-American and your father's side of the family is West Indian, right? Uh-huh. And you wrote in the book, African-American women are less likely to be diagnosed with breast cancer, but more likely to die from it. And uh-huh. elsewhere in the book, you also um, mentioned that African-American women are diagnosed with breast cancer at younger ages and at later stages. Um, with most being diagnosed stage three or later, which is actually the stage Mm -hmm. that you ended up having. Um, Mm -hmm. So why, I mean, having, you know, you were diagnosed quite a while ago now and you've you've been involved as an advocate for quite a while, what's your perspective on why there is such a disparity between Caucasian and African-American women in the U.S. when it comes to breast cancer? Yeah, there's so many variables. one thing about the late stage diagnosis, I think if we're if we're diagnosed younger, we're getting it younger, some of us aren't at that age like I wasn't at the 40 year old range where you can get a mammogram to discover it. Mm-hmm. So discovering it, they say usually when you can feel it, it's at least two stage two or later okay. by the time you can actually detect breast cancer with your, you know, breast self exam. Mm-hmm. So that could be part of it if we're younger. Um, there are some socioeconomic factors, um, diet could be an issue, um, genetics. I know that triple negative breast cancer is more, um, prevalent in Africa, in the African American community. Mm -hmm. So that could be part of reason why we die more often if we have more of the triple negative breast cancer. Right. And there's not a whole lot of options outside of chemotherapy for that type of breast cancer. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And yours, your breast cancer was actually ERPR positive and HER2 mm-hmm. negative, is that right? Right. Which is mm-hmm. the more the most typical uh, breast cancer yes. pattern, right? Yeah. Yep. And I know at one point in the book when you're talking about going through radiation, um, you mentioned how yes. they were, they always try to kind of monitor and see if you're getting radiation burns so they can adjust things. Uh, and they thought you were doing well and not really having issues and then kind of like maybe toward the end of your treatment or correct me when it when it was but they kind of like realized you you did have significant burns it's just that they weren't noticed because you have darker skin so they didn't show up in the same way that they were used to seeing them yeah and I never had burns or sunburn or anything so I didn't know I saw a darker area and I just thought oh okay yeah I'm getting darker because they're radiating me but then it stays in your system and works after, mm. you know, the treatment is over. Okay. And that's when my skin kept getting darker and it just peeled and it just was pretty bad. Right. Burns. Yeah. So maybe. And I, I think it couldn't be overlooked, you know, because I don't think we have experience with African-American people or people of darker skin burning. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, your skin burning. So I don't. I think if I had been lighter, they would have said, "Oh, she's really red. Maybe we should, you know, take a break a little bit." Right. So, do you think it yeah. would even help, like education for for someone who has darker skin who's going to go through radiation to have a little bit of self education and their, for their healthcare provider to also be aware, like this is what a burn is going to look like or feel like for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I remember traveling with a, like a darker skinned friend one time and I was like, she was not putting on sunblock. So I got lazy about it and I have very fair skin and I burn easily and I was burning and she was like, she was oh, like, Oh, no. that's interesting. Like, what is, what does that feel like? Like I've never had a sunburn. I was like, it hurts. You know, it's like, it's not good. Yeah. But she's like, she's right. like, it was like a point of interest to her. And I was like, I'm, I'm pretty miserable right now. I've been following your poor example. So. <laughs> I was fortunate enough that it didn't hurt, mm-hmm. but other people told me it, it did hurt them that, you know, people that got burned, they said it was painful. So I was glad that for some reason mine wasn't. Yeah. 
I don't know if it's because of the surgery and maybe numbness from having had the surgery, but yeah, they were pretty bad burns. Was there anything else uh, similar to that where you felt like the care was just slightly off because they weren't as used to, I'm not sure with the the breast surgery or the reconstruction, I'm not sure if there's any other issues where where that comes up or affects like the cosmetics or just like certain assumptions where it's just really like where they're they're kind of you know like in medicine in general we think it's like based around like the white male but then when it comes to breast cancer I think like the default is the Caucasian women woman yeah it was so funny this is funny because I have a Caucasian friend and we were together at a breast cancer walk in Houston with um, Sisters Network which is an African-American breast cancer organization Mm -hmm. and so we were talking, she was helping with me at my book table and we were talking about my little areola. And we're like, it's more like a Caucasian girl's areola. And so my (laughs) friend was like, looking at me like, what do you mean? And I'm like, it's small. (laughs) African-American women have larger, it seems larger areolas. Uh Uh-huh, that's interesting. Did you, I mean, in principle, your surgeon should have been trying to match it to the areola you had on the other breast, right? Well, I had the lift, so he had to do a lollipop. He cut off, you know, to lift it, Uh so then it's smaller. But that was one thing we talked about, and it was like, I wonder if there's any truth to that. Hmm. Like, it always seemed, I don't know, I seemed like there's maybe because of the coloration, I don't know. It seemed like I've always seen large areolas on African-American women. I feel like now everybody listening to the podcast is going to start doing Google, right. Google, <laughs> Google, Google image of uh, areolas, you know, and trying to compare. So yeah. you're going to never forget now when you see these pictures, <laughs> National Geographic and different things you're going to be looking. Yeah. Um, so reading your story, um, it starts in 2007. But, you know, as a, as a reader, of course, it's 2018, I was planning to interview you, I already knew that you were going to be diagnosed with cancer. So as I was reading it, I was really nervous. As I saw <laughs> that, like, you discovered a lump, you were pretty convinced it was cancer. Um, and oh, you yeah, were, because you didn't know when it was. Yeah, I didn't know when you were going to get connected to the right people to get the care you needed. <laughs> mm-hmm. I just knew that that you should get it sooner rather than later, and that it was going to happen <laughs> later than I wanted it to. But you have this yeah. whole chain of appointments and referrals and it seemed like you were very proactive in getting those appointments but it's still like to me as a reader it just seemed to take a very long time for you to finally get that diagnosis and be connected to a surgeon and the first time yeah and it was kind of like um okay you now we think it is now go and get your um, mammogram and ultrasound and we're pretty sure it is but now go get a biopsy okay, we know it is, but wait four weeks before we do a mastectomy. And that's when I started feeling like my underarm was swollen and I felt like something was going on in my underarm, right. the lymph nodes. And my doctor said, oh, it's probably just irritated. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, I don't think so. So it was confirmation for me when they did the lymph node dissection and she told me it was in my lymph nodes. I was like, yeah, I knew it was you know, it was progressing. Right. So in hindsight, I would have, you know, gotten in a lot sooner to get the mastectomy. How do you, I mean. Because in- she told me it was slow growing from the pathology. I don't know how she figured that out, but they said, oh, no, it's slow growing. Even though I think the radiologist or the technician told you that it looked aggressive, right? When they were just uh-huh. the imaging, that was their impression. Yes. Yes. So, I mean, looking back, though, I mean, reading the book, I couldn't really, it wasn't obvious to me how you could have gotten in faster. Like, you needed to see, you were new in town, you just recently moved to San Francisco, so you needed a primary care physician, and they got you in, yeah. like, a 6.30 a.m. appointment, but then you... I was pretty fortunate yeah. with the appointment scheduling, how things are typically. Now, I will brag about the Cancer Treatment Centers of America <laughs> because everything there is fast. And that's not where you were treated initially. That's who you were connected no. to later, right? That was, yeah, that was California typical, you know, system. We just wait. I mean, we just scheduling this just everybody wants to get in right away. So you just have to wait, you know, it's two weeks 
two weeks can be add up, you know, when you're doing two weeks waiting on that, two weeks waiting to get in on that. I mean, some things were, were rushed a little bit, but I didn't know why I had to wait four weeks right. from diagnosis to the surgery, but I figured they knew best, so. Right. I mean, even yeah. even when you first went in to see a GYN to have the clinical breast exam, to try to get a referral for a mammogram, which you already knew that you needed to have surgery, which you were pretty sure you needed. <laughs> he mm-hmm. initially, when he did the breast exam, as they typically do, kind of like lying back and he felt nothing and you had to point out to him where the lump was. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want like, what advice would you give to a woman who is certain as as you were that there was something wrong? Because it seemed like you sort of like did the exam for him. (laughs) Um, Yeah. That he didn't really provide. It seemed like he was very kind. He had a good bedside manner. And you you mentioned that like his wife had recently been diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm -hmm. But I didn't really see that he was a helpful point in the the process. (laughs) Not finding it the clinical way because... When I found my lump, it was because of a rash and I went to put cortisone cream on it. And so that was kind of like pushing against the the breast, like the side of the breast, not doing like rolling your fingers over because when they actually took out the tumor, it was discus shaped. So it was flat and it felt like muscle. Mm. So you could miss it. Right. So... That's probably how I missed it. But thank God for this rash. So then when I felt something there, I squeezed and thought, oh, my God, what is this? So I would say and I tell people anytime I speak anywhere, I tell people to make sure to squeeze because a lot of times a partner will find, you know, a spouse will find their wife's slump or a boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever. Mm -hmm. They might find it because they're squeezing. Right. They're not doing the little run your fingers over feeling for a pebble. Right. So I like to add, have people add that to the, to the breast self exam because they couldn't feel it. My doctor couldn't feel it. Even, you know, I told him I have to sit up and I, you have to squeeze it. And then once he did that, his, his eyes kind of were like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> and I was glad he was like, let's get you in. Might not be anything, but let's be, I was happy because I knew I was under 40 African-American, now I can tell you as an African-American woman, so we're talking about disparities, Mm -hmm. sometimes we're not taken seriously. So I just knew, and you know, even being a woman and a young woman, you know what it is to not be taken seriously. Right. So I was like, okay, I'm going to fight for a mammogram. So I was glad I didn't have to do that. But you, and, um, you went in thinking that you might have to fight for it, right? Right, right. Because I had watched Oprah back then. Oprah shows <laughs> yeah, were on there's so back many, in the day. There's so many Oprah references in your book. <laughs> right, because Oprah, you watch Oprah, you see these shows where women were told to go back home. You, it's nothing. And so I said, that's not going to happen to me. I'm going to make sure they check it out because I want to know that it's nothing. Right. You know? Yeah. And plus my grandmother had just not just died of breast cancer, but she was 80 some years old Mm -hmm. and she had breast cancer, died of breast cancer. So my dad was thinking, oh my God, she probably has, you know, before I even was diagnosed, it was, it could be breast cancer, you know? Right. That really wasn't what I was thinking, you know, just because she had it. I didn't think I had any reason to be concerned. And then when I went to the doctor and did all this genetic testing and everything, found out that she, being 80 years old, they said, you know, if you live long enough, you're going to get some sort of cancer. So they didn't see that that was hereditary or any family pattern. Yeah. Yeah. So that was interesting. And she was postmenopausal and I'm premenopausal. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it, it could be somewhat related, but it's just, you know, she fell more into the category of, like you mentioned in your book, I think like one in eight women develops breast cancer at some point in her life. But for Mm -hmm. most of them, it's more like your grandmother, like after, after menopause, Um, Mm -hmm. not, not in your thirties. So, yeah. So the other thing that was interesting to me is I, I think I mentioned it in the book, but her brother had prostate cancer. And then now, since then, her sister has passed of, and it's hard, I can't get my family in the islands to really say, did she have breast cancer 
or what did she have? But I know she had radiation to her breast. And then shortly after that, she went downhill. This is my grand, my paternal grandmother's sister. So I think there's a connection, a gene that we don't know about yet. I strongly believe there's a gene because I feel like my grandmother could have had stomach cancer, you know, colon cancer, any kind of cancer, but she had breast cancer and so did I. Right. I just don't feel like that's um, random. Yeah. And you mentioned in the book also, you don't have, your father doesn't have any sisters, right? Mm-mm. Yeah. So that's so just like fewer. They wouldn't really know. Right. Like yeah. fewer data points. You don't really have the opportunity to see if you might've had mm-hmm. ants, you would have had that increased risk. Um, yep. So, and in, so in 2000, initially when you had testing done in 2007, it was just for BR, the BRCA genes in July, mm-hmm. 2014, when your breast cancer recurred, Um, I know you ended up having additional genetic testing done, um, and those results were also negative. Who did that initial? Oh, I I think you shared notes with me, so I know you did see a genetic counselor. What was Uh what was the process like with that second referral? Like, who referred you? What was that conversation like? And what do you remember about that second consultation? Um, I can't remember if they recommended it. I. I think they recommended it, but I think if they hadn't recommended it, I was going to ask about it because I knew that there were new genes. Okay. And I remember them saying that too. So I don't remember who initiated the conversation, but they're very thorough. So I can imagine that they probably would want to know so that if I had an issue with ovarian cancer, you know, having a risk for that, they would want to know. And Actually, with my breast cancer being estrogen-driven, estrogen and progesterone-fed, you mm-hmm. know, that could be an option to remove my ovaries. But they shut them off at this point with medication. But the second time around, it was just me and the counselor. And it was a good experience the second time as well. I'm not sure why people would not have a good experience with <laughs> genetic testing. Yeah. Unless it's bad news. <laughs> but um, I was amazed since you were asking like what the difference is between the first time and the second time. Uh-huh. It was just I was amazed at how many more genes they, they had identified. Yeah. Things did really take like a big leap. Um, yeah. And I was surprised still that none of them were mine. I didn't have any of those mutations. Yeah. So... Yeah, I think the the thing that's maybe changed now since you've since 2014 is now there is some testing that's starting to be offered. It's still pretty new, but where they'll do testing instead of focusing like the testing you had done was detailed analysis of specific genes that are known to have an increased um, that are known to have. Um, to be associated with an increased risk for breast cancer, but they're looking really Mm -hmm. in detail at every part of those genes. Um, Whereas Mm. now, sometimes they'll do testing looking at areas of interest across a number of different genes. So a lot Mm -hmm. of tiny risk factors, um, let's say like 80 points of interest, where when you put them all together, it says something about the genetic risk. So I think like that's something that might be in the future more valuable for people when there's negative test results. But mm-hmm. also sometimes like my experience so far, often those results sort of reflect family history. <laughs> so sometimes the family history is like as as helpful. Um, but that's that's mm-hmm. kind of in its infancy, like just starting to be to be offered now. And some breast surgeons love it and some thinks it's nonsense. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I think like several years from now, that might be something that that's that's more helpful than it is today. And they only tested for breast, not everything. Yeah, that I could be predisposed to. Yeah. And you're in your case, I, I mean, I didn't look at your actual test results, but looking at the mm-hmm. genetic counselors notes. Yeah, it looked like you mm-hmm. were tested specifically for genes that are associated with just an increased risk for for breast cancer. But they got I know there's a lot of genetic counselors who seem to listen to this podcast, so I'm sure they're wondering what you were what you were tested for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I try to avoid mentioning lab names, but you were tested for so okay. BRCA one and two. They did that testing again, 
Um, and there is, for someone, the testing that was done on BRCA genes in 2007 wasn't mm-hmm. quite as comprehensive as the testing that started to be done on BRCA genes, like let's say in 2012. So it was mm-hmm. actually valuable to repeat that of the BRCA genes. Oh, okay. And mm-hmm. then you had, um, yeah, the, they'll sometimes like, testing that wasn't routine in 2007 that's now included is for large rearrangements of genetic material in the BRCA gene. So occasionally there could be someone, you know, testing in 2007 that was negative, and if they had testing today, they'd actually find a mutation. Um, mm. And then you you were negative for mutations in PALB2, uh, CHECK2, ATM, those are three big ones. Those would be probably the next most common, the next next most likely, um, mm-hmm. and then negative for mutations in the other big ones for high risk or TP53, P10, mm-hmm. a few a few others. But those those three check two ATM PALB two those would have been if we were like gambling. If I were in Vegas, mm-hmm. <laughs> you, have, you you have good luck with gambling. But if you had to like put money on something, you'd guess like one of those after BRCA. So. It's interesting because it's out in the world or like in the news, you don't hear anything other than BRCA1 and 2 still. Yeah, yeah. I even, it's it's funny because even for, uh, for breast cancer awareness, so usually we put out a podcast every other week for October, um, making a push to put out one episode every week focused on breast cancer. But I, I was actually tr- like wanting to include an interview with someone who had a mutation in a non-BRCA gene just to kind of help mm. raise awareness. Um, mm-hmm. And it actually wasn't super wasn't super easy to find someone. <laughs> so wow, yeah, I'll have one. And are they linked to specific types of breast cancer or it's and other health risks or sometimes how does that work? sometimes yes, sometimes no. Depends on the gene. Um, not it. They're not linked in a way that's as obvious and important as helpful as the link with BRCA genes and ovarian cancer. So I would say mm. testing for the BRCA genes is still by far the most important, and then. Mm-hmm. Some of, and then it because it is still fairly new to be testing these genes, we're really still learning. So even though breast mm-hmm. cancer is the main cancer risk, there could be increased risk for some other cancers, but a lot of that is just something where I think several years from now we'll probably have a lot more knowledge about that than we do today. Mm-hmm. Yes, we're still practicing and learning. <laughs> so yeah, there's so much we don't know. Yeah. In the book, you talk about your perspective on breast cancer survivors before, long before you ever had breast cancer, and then how you felt differently once you actually had breast cancer. So I, I want to ask you to read actually that section of the book, if you don't mind. Okay, sure. To be totally candid, before I had breast cancer, I admired survivors of the disease because it seemed like quite an accomplishment. I'd heard people introduce women who were breast cancer survivors at conferences or on TV, and because they'd survived breast cancer, people always responded as if the woman had climbed Mount Everest three times in high heels. Now that I was diagnosed with breast cancer, I saw how ridiculous it was to make such a big deal about someone surviving breast cancer. If you survive breast cancer, it is not because of anything that you've done. It's by the grace of God. How do you feel when Breast Cancer Awareness Month comes around in October? And what do you see that you like that you find is really helpful? And what just kind of makes you cringe um, mm. that you wish would, would go away or was handled differently? Yeah. Well, I always feel kind of helpless when people come to me and they're in need or, you know, I know they could use a ride or, you know, uh, money or different things because I refer them places and I don't know if they're always getting help. Mm-hmm. So that's one unfortunate thing. Um, So I see a lot of races. I think I talked about in the book that I just felt like walks and races just weren't my thing because I feel like we have awareness now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Everybody's aware (laughs) of breast cancer. Yeah, There's still a lot of fear. I feel like we just need to talk more about prevention and... um, early detection and things like that. But as far as all the loads and loads and loads of money we're raising, on one hand, I feel like there are other cancers out there. I do have friends that have colon cancer and leukemia, different kinds of cancers. And I've heard from people that are like, 
I want to raise money for this or I'm looking for a donation from this organization for this. And they say, well, you have the wrong type of cancer. And that just breaks my heart. Yeah. I wish that we could spread the love around. Honestly, I mean, I was diagnosed around September, October. So for me being October, it was like perfect timing for me because everywhere you look, there was some kind of TV show about breast cancer. There was magazine articles. It was just the time where I could just suck everything in. But it's gotten really bad. There's a commercial here that um, a company offers a discount for breast cancer awareness. And I'm just kind of like, what are you? This is not a holiday. It's not July 4th. Right. A better way to do it would be to donate a portion of your sales to an organization or something that's going to help people going through breast cancer or research or something, but just to get people in the door, it seemed they were doing this special. Like a, like a marketing thing that's sort of gimmicky without benefiting research at all. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then, I don't know, I just really, there's a documentary and I, I haven't watched it. Maybe I'll watch it this October and it talks, it might be called pink washing, but it just talks about all of the pink things that are out there for sale and where does the money go and all these different things. So I'm kind of skeptical about some of this stuff, mm-hmm. but I'm glad that people are paying attention. Um, that little excerpt that you read, that is really how I felt back in the day. I remember seeing people that it was just like, wow, she's amazing. She survived cancer. It's like, okay, but when you're in the nitty gritty of it. (laughs) Yeah. And you see people that you feel like they've done everything and they pass away, then you're like, wow, (laughs) that's crazy. You know, like I'm here and I'm doing well, but I don't take it for granted at all. Yeah. You know, I just, just feel like I'm here another day and make the most out of it. But, um, you real it's humbling. It should be very humbling. It's a humbling experience. You're not in control. Yeah. Yeah, I know there's um I think like mixed mixed feelings in the survivor community and outside of it about like all of the war metaphors around cancer. Mm-hmm. We're like mm-hmm. fighting cancer, beating cancer, you're gonna beat it, you're strong and then It's a battle. Yeah, and I mean in your yeah. case like you met the five year survivor mark and then it recurred and like now you're cancer free. But like you you know, you talk about in the book, um, a friend or I think maybe it was like a friend of a friend who you went through part of your um, radiation, chemo or radiation with and had like colon cancer in her 30s and died from oh, colon yeah. cancer. And it's like, it's not mm-hmm. like she just like didn't fight hard enough, you know? <laughs> yeah. She really had a lot of faith and, you know, she just was really a strong Christian woman and she was praying and she felt like the Lord was going to heal her. And she died and it just was sad you know, to see. And um, I've had a few friends. I just feel like something's up with the cancer rate. They say it hasn't increased, but uh, I'm going to do some research. I think amongst our generation, younger generations, I, I don't remember my mom having this many friends that had cancer. And I'm not just saying people that I've met from, you know, going through cancer, people that I've gone to school with, you know, People, my sister's friends. I've got so many people that I know that are battling cancer. Yeah. And I did say battle. (laughs) I do feel that it is a battle. I do feel like you do have a part in it. I don't think you can be negative and just eat junk all day and, you know, win Uh this battle. It's a battle. And it is, you know, a battle of the mind as well. Keeping yourself strong, not being depressed and defeated. I think you can be mentally defeated, mm-hmm. emotionally defeated by a cancer diagnosis. So I do feel like that. But one thing that I don't say is cancerversary. Oh, I have never heard that before. People will say, I'm celebrating my cancerversary, meaning one year out or two years out, whatever. Was, it's your anniversary of surviving. I, that it's the, the word itself makes me think it's an anniversary of diagnosis. <laughs> right. It is, I guess. But, you know, but like, yeah, you're celebrating to me. It's like, 
I'm celebrating cancer. I don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't say it. I say survivor anniversary or my survivor anniversary, but I never say the cancer anniversary thing. Right. Mm-mm. Yeah. No, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. That's a totally new one for me. <laughs> yeah. It exists. Um, and is there, is, so is there anything that, especially thinking back to, you know, before you, before you were diagnosed and seeing people on TV and seeing, thinking like, oh, this is such an accomplishment, but without that personal experience with breast cancer and before your grandmother had breast cancer, is there anything that you just always believed about breast cancer for a long time where once you actually had breast cancer and went through treatment, you realized was just wrong? That might be a common misconception that other people have too. Mm-hmm. Glad you asked. <laughs> um, yeah, so breast cancer is not one disease, you know, mm-hmm. and I think people think it is. And so a lot of times if you told someone, oh, I had breast cancer, they go, oh, my aunt had breast cancer. You'll be fine. <laughs> She's alive and 20 years later, you'll be fine. Uh-huh. It's like, okay. You know, and it was like, she had stage zero and you had stage three and it's kind of like, and maybe yours is triple negative and hers was estrogen positive. Like it's not the same thing. And the risk factors, you know what I mean? The, the risk or how long you might the, live. The prog, the, beha- how the, the prognosis tumor yes, behaves the and the prognosis. Survival rates. Yeah. Yes. Are different. Mm-hmm. And so it was um, sometimes a little annoying. I try to be, some people are annoyed about everything with cancer and you can't be, you can't be mad if somebody wants to relate and people relate before they think about it. So mm-hmm. they might say, Oh, my mom had cancer. She died. You know, yeah. I don't make that an issue that somebody says so-and-so had cancer and they died. It didn't end well. I don't think they intended to discourage you or scare you or anything. They just want to tell you that they have been through a similar journey you know just to relate but um yeah and it it, that was annoying if people would just say you're gonna be fine it's like no really it's more serious than that right (laughs) yeah so that's one thing um what one thing that i oh sorry no go ahead i was just thinking about when i was going through cancer and i didn't go get my nails or anything done because i just was shy about the fact that my feet were black at the bottom from the you know my palms of my hands and my feet turned dark like my skin Mm -hmm. and you know the fingernails are falling off and all of that and I didn't want to go to the salon because I didn't want to have to explain to people like okay I'm not contagious (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. I think I might have an easier time now because there's so much chemo knowledge people are aware but I might feel better about saying, hey, you know, I have cancer, I'm going through treatment. And so I would probably be less ashamed about it. Mm -hmm. But I would tell people now to just, you know, not be shy about it. Yeah. Knowing now. Yeah. You mentioned that in the book, too, just uh, I don't remember which which juncture in the book, but just wishing that you just gone. It was just like I could Mm -hmm. I could just go anyway with my my nails like this and just explain what was going on. Yeah. Yep. Hearing your experience of, you know, it's not helpful and kind of annoying when people say oh my my mother someone had that and like died and equally unhelpful or differently unhelpful to say you're going to be fine (laughs) what do you what do you you think what is a good thing for someone to say what were the things that people said to you that where it was actually helpful because I think a lot of the time people just don't know what what to say like they want to say something but they don't know Mm -hmm. what what they can say that won't be the wrong thing Yeah. I struggle with that too, even having gone through it because it just, everyone's so different. You don't want to be too optimistic because you know, they're like, what are you talking about? Even me, I can be, you know, people can perceive me as being too positive, Mm -hmm. you know, but I think to encourage them that you're there for them if they need anything that you're thinking of them, praying for them, 
um, cards. I would say don't distance yourself from them because I think some people think, oh, they have so much going on. I don't want to bother them. But at least just try like to reach out. And I guess if they don't reach back or if they don't answer or whatever, then you'll know they didn't want to be bothered. But at least make an effort. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I remember at some point, maybe it was after your surgery where you mentioned you were just getting so many cards and flowers. And it was just really encouraging, just like how many people had. It was. And I don't know if, like, was it anything they wrote in the cards that was, oh, yeah. (laughs) Strangers. Just everyone was so nice. Yeah. Like friends of friends and colleagues of people Mm -hmm. you knew, right? Yeah. People that just heard about it and were like, I want to, you know, send her some love. Yeah. Um, special, something special they wrote. Um, a lot of times when people told me that I was tough and I could get through it, I mean, that was encouraging. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because sometimes you don't think that you're tough, but, you know, to hear other people cheer you on is, is good. I mean, I always felt pretty positive, but I know people who aren't, and I I know they need a little extra encouragement that they are strong, you know? Yeah. And to just know that you've been through, I mean, everyone's had something to deal with in life, some sort of stress. I mean, at some point in your life after teenage years, <laughs> mm-hmm. life happens. So you've had to deal with some sort of stress or grief or something and just know that we are tough. Human beings are tough. Yeah. We can get through a lot. So the mind is so powerful. And that's why I say it is a battle because I feel like you have to make an effort to keep negativity out of your mind. At what point did you start receiving care through the Cancer Treatment Centers of America and become an ambassador for them? Mm -hmm. I know you've been really happy there. Um, or happy with the care there, kind of see it as ideal. And then I'm mm-hmm. interested to know, like, when did you become involved with a Stanford Cancer Institute Community Partnership Program? That's a mouthful. Um, mm-hmm. Before I before <laughs> I read your book, I was kind of assuming, I just, like, saw Stanford Cancer, and I was kind of assuming that you'd been a patient there. Um, and mm-hmm. then I read your book, and I was like, oh, not at all. So how did you mm-hmm. kind of get connected with both of those organizations, and what does it mean to be an ambassador with those organizations? Okay, so I was living in the San Francisco Bay Area and I was treated um, at John Muir Hospital in um, Diablo Valley Oncology. And I went to a Susan G. Komen brunch, a cancer survivor brunch, and I met a lady by the name of Pamela Ratliff. And she is over the um, community partnership program at Stanford, we kept in touch and she said that she was starting um, a program where she would take survivors and turn them into ambassadors where you go out into the community and you educate people about the disparities and how they can prevent breast cancer and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So that's how I got involved with Stanford because she was part of Stanford and Dr. Rhodes was the director over the community partnership program. Okay. And is that talking to... And they were... Do you go to like community? Oh, Do you go to like community centers or where? Who, who, Wherever we can go, and then she would have an annual event. Okay. And we would help her with that a really big African American breast cancer and African Americans event she has every Memorial Day weekend. I think is the time frame that she does it, mm-hmm. and she always gets a really really good turnout. Um, and they're mostly people every year. It seems like different people not return return visitors but so she's really reaching a lot of people in the bay area there um and then with the cancer treatment centers of america when i went there for my second opinion i started treatment right away and then i think on my consultation visit i joined cancer fighters which is their organization of patients okay Um, it's kind of like a network and this is when you went for a sec- second opinion after your recurrence or earlier? Mm-hmm. Okay. Because I had my metastasis and I went to an oncology clinic 
here in Texas. And right, because you'd relocated like, to yes, Dallas reloc- shortly before yep. your recurrence, right? Okay. Yes, yes. So I had just moved to California the first diagnosis, and then the second time I had just moved to Texas. Right. So it's crazy. But I didn't like what they said about they recommended the same medication, but they said that diet, I could eat whatever I want, mm-hmm. which I know is not true. And I asked them about stress because both times that I was diagnosed, I was under a lot of work stress. Mm-hmm. Emotional stress, I think I'm okay with, but work stress, I must be like a perfectionist and things just need to be right. And I don't know, I was under a lot of stress. And so I felt like that had an impact on the diagnosis. And she said, the doctor there said, oh, everyone has some sort of stress in their lives. I'm like, okay, you don't get it. I'm like, I'm out of here. Yeah. So my family said, you need to call the Cancer Treatment Centers of America because they saw the commercials. <laughs> <laughs> so I called and I thought it would be too good to be true because it, the phone call went so nice and they were just so compassionate and sympathetic. I just was like, and knowledgeable. I thought I would get like a call center somewhere, you know, not in America. Right. <laughs> and they knew everything about my bone metastases and everything. They were just were awesome. And so I went there, got my consultation and then started treatment right away and then got involved right away. And so I do a journaling class every month that I go called writing through it. Mm-hmm. Because since I wrote a book, everyone always asks like, or they say, I have a book too, I haven't published it, or I want to write a book, or how did you get started writing a book? So I just decided I wanted to do something with writing, because they want every cancer fighter ambassador when they come to the hospital to give back, to kind of like talk to other patients and get them involved. So I do that every month when I go, and it's been growing, and people are loving it because expressive writing is so helpful with emotional healing and even physical healing. Yeah. So yeah, so it's, it's good. So in your book, besides talking a lot about what's going on in your personal life with like family, friends, relationships, school, jobs, you also like there's there's a kind of like a political backdrop, which was interesting for me because I think I just think like 2007, you know, it's like a year, but then as soon as you kind of reminded me in the book what was going on politically, I could remember more like where I was and what was going on in my life. So oh, good. initially, like initially when you were diagnosed, I think you, you're talking about it's the Democratic primaries, um, Obama and Hillary, and initially you're more in favor of Hillary and you're hesitant to support Obama. And then fast forward at some point, you're thinking about Obama's second term, you end up in D.C. kind of doing vacation slash volunteering when the Affordable Care Act um, is about to be passed. And mm-hmm. so much so much has changed politically mm-hmm. <laughs> since, <laughs> since this book was published in 2015. Right. Like I was thinking I was like fast forward to like the political backdrop now. But I wonder like how you say that specifically related to healthcare, um, just, you know, with the experience of being diagnosed with, with cancer at, at such a young age and just like mm-hmm. really like needing those healthcare services. Yes. I, boy, I'm just holding my breath, hoping that I'll still have pre-existing conditions covered, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it's a scary time. I'm just, you know, waiting to see what's going to happen with healthcare. Um, I know President Trump has talked about keeping coverage for pre-existing conditions and or uh what else has he talked about keeping uh I don't know. He's saying he's going to keep some parts of it, not others, but it's not even feasible, really. He says he says a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So who even knows? I mean, he changes every day with the things he's saying. But I, if they're going to repeal the Affordable Care Act, they're already, you know, dismantling it. So, and it does so much more than just, um, I mean, with breast cancer, they're covering mammograms. They're covering... Um, healthcare for college age people, the DSHS portion of it. I mean, what could happen, I think, 
is Medicare for all. I keep hearing them talk about Medicare and expanding it. And I'm wondering if that's possible. Mm -hmm. So that could be something positive that comes out of it because I don't think they really have a plan. And he says, oh, who thought healthcare was this complicated? <laughs> yeah, it's complicated. It takes some brains, like people yeah. with brains to like sit down and crunch the numbers. Right. It's just kind of like with tariffs. You think you just impact, in, you know, like install a tariff or institute a tariff. And it's, you got to think about the ramifications in every step of the way, like the domino effect of that. So... Mm. Yeah, I am still watching and waiting. And even professionally, though, it's it's an issue for me because I'm in my job. I'm very comfortable in my job. But if I wanted to move on, I really have to make sure I have medical care. Like even if I wanted to be a real estate agent, I got the paperwork to study real estate and I'll probably get my license. But to branch out on my own is really risky for someone who's in treatment for stage four breast cancer to go and try to get insurance on your own. My insurance, the year that I had my reconstruction was, how much was it? 400,000, I think. Yeah. That's a lot of money I don't have. Did you, did you end up, um, what was your insurance coverage like with all of that? Did you end up having, like, was everything covered or most things covered or did you have out of pocket costs? I had some out-of-pocket costs, um, nothing that really would bankrupt me. Like I, when I was diagnosed with breast cancer, that was around that Michael Moore sickle time. Like people were refinancing their houses and losing their homes. Like people were really, they were dying because they couldn't pay for treatment and things. So when I came along in 2007 and President Obama and all these different changes they made with the Affordable Care Act. That was life-saving for me because now you had your out-of-pocket max and you weren't going to pay more than that. So that part of it's been good and I have a good insurance with my company, but you know, some people aren't as fortunate. And so I do want to see a day when everyone is covered with healthcare. And I know the Affordable Care Act was an idea because, or ideal, because a lot of people didn't want to have to pay a tax because they don't have insurance. Mm -hmm. But I understand that it was required in order to get everyone in the system so that they could pay for people like me that have more health care expenses than the average person. Yeah. Who knew, who knew that health care was so complicated? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly not our president. <laughs> uh, um, so I know I really enjoyed reading your book. Um, I think it's something that a lot of people um, going through breast cancer could find encouragement from, but also if they have a friend going through breast cancer, especially diagnosed at a young age, kind of provides mm -hmm. a little bit of glimpse, like definitely helped me to have like a little bit more understanding of what it might be like. Like you said, it's like a lot of the time, most of the time, this is something that people are dealing with at a later stage in life and the issues are just very different. Mm -hmm. um, so where where can people buy your book? I know, well, I know Amazon, Barnes and Noble and Google Books, right? As well as mm -hmm. your website. But what's what's the best place for them to buy your book? Is it is it your website? Is that the ideal place for them to go? Well, if they want a signed copy, my website is the best place. Okay. If they don't, then Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, sometimes they could just look online, and it could be. I know I'm in some smaller bookstores and things too. So just wherever books are sold. But if you want a signed copy digginyourheels.com is where you would want to go. Okay. Yep. Um, I like that my, my signed copy arrived with a, a, I noticed as I was reading through, you'd like written in the margins of like, here's the genetic testing section. And yeah. I was like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> here's your section. <laughs> yeah, here's your section. I was like, oh. And then it actually, then I wanted to flip back to the genetic testing section. So that actually was helpful. But I was like, wow, I was surprised to see that. <laughs> yeah, um, because I wanted to make sure if you couldn't read it all, that you at least read that section. Yeah. About my genetic testing. Yeah. No, I read, I read it all. Totally enjoyed it. Um, yeah. And so you said, how did you decide to be so candid? Yeah. Yeah. 
So I read a book one time and a lady was very, very candid. It was more about um, her childhood growing up and abuse and things. And I was like, oh, this is too much. I really don't want to know all of this. My book hopefully did not do that to you, but I did share. I'm sure it was quite like surprising, unexpected and things like that. Um, I shared a lot of my story because I felt like there's probably someone going through breast cancer in a bad relationship Mm -hmm. and they need to understand that it's not healthy Mm -hmm. and that they need to, um, just push, push forward, move forward and take care of themselves first. Right. And then for some men, I feel like, or partners that aren't supportive, or they have someone going through it, they can read it and they can understand what they need to not do. Yeah. So they can learn how to be a good support, right? A a counter example? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because I met a lady at a conference and her husband, she's like, oh, he's been my right hand. He's been this and that. He's been my everything. And I said, that is awesome. That's what you want. Right. You know, but everybody doesn't have that. Right. And so I did want to show like the challenges I was going through, real life challenges we're dealing with as young people, uh, student loans, job hunting. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was kind of a coming of age, I felt like, because, you know, I was going through all of that stuff. And then by the end of it, it was like, things are better now, you know, and even now I'm amazed that 2007, I was in a little shoebox apartment had breast cancer. Now, 11 years later, I'm in this beautiful home. I'm by myself in my beautiful home, but I'm very happily by myself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, independent woman pushing forward. Yeah. So I just wanted people to read the whole story. And then just about dating and getting back out there and self-esteem. And because I do get a lot of questions from single women about like, how do you go about, you know, dating and intimacy you know, after you've had a mastectomy or if you don't have any breasts and different things. So it's challenging. So I just want to talk about the whole picture. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think, I think it, it definitely makes, makes the book like that much more compelling. It just feels very, very real. And people, I, I really felt like I got a sense of who you were. It was just like very kind of inspiring and encouraging that you had, um, you know, so transparent about a lot of the things that you had to deal with, but ultimately also very positive, you know, without, without being like, you know, like rose, like too rosy, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but just like very real and still, still very positive. It's really encouraging book. Yeah, and I wanted people to understand why I thought like I did. So I did the whole spiritual things. It's like everybody's going to have that. God, okay, what's up? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then just reminiscing about living in Paris because I was like, wow, that was so awesome living there. You know, like, was that the highlight of my life? <laughs> right. <laughs> At the time. And then the political thing, I just felt like in a book, if you're looking back over time period what else was going on in the world right you know and I was really concerned about that because I had a stake in whether or not I would have health care you know it was like that was important it was an issue close to my heart yeah so yeah so I appreciate you reading the book <laughs> totally having me on your podcast if you'd like to share your story send an email to podcast at greatgenetics.com Great Genetics provides genetic counseling services to patients throughout the U.S. and the world using secure, HIPAA-compliant video conferencing. To book an appointment, visit greatgenetics.com. If you enjoy listening to patient stories, please take two seconds to rate us on iTunes and consider taking 30 more seconds to leave us a review on iTunes. Those ratings and reviews really do help us to reach more people and to share your stories with a broader audience. You can also easily share any of our episodes through social media. You can find Gray Genetics on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute medical advice and is also not a substitute for genetic counseling. Neither Gray Genetics nor any of its guests makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Evaluation of an individual's personal and family health history is a crucial part of genetic counseling and any recommendations.